Thank you so much for that. I don't know about you, but uh, I, don't, I, don't mind, I don't mind a bowl of soup, pumpkin soup. Kel makes a good pumpkin soup. Uh, it's this Thai little number. You put a bit of peanut butter in there, and it kind of makes it all Thai somehow. I don't really understand it, but it tastes good, and I like it. And I like a mulligatawny soup she makes too with spicy bits. I like, really like spicy stuff in, uh, in my soups, but it's not really soup season, is it? Soup season seems to me to be in the middle of winter. You're sort of cozying up at home, you've got a blanket on, uh, and uh, it's really cold outside, and a bowl of soup can warm, warm you up. But I chose my words carefully at the beginning. I don't mind soup. It's, it's, it's okay. Uh, but it's a sometimes food. I, I don't know if you think the same thing, but if I was on a soup-only diet, I'd be pretty over it. Uh, to be honest with you, soup is okay, but what you need with your soup is a big mountain of some sort of crusty bread alongside it just to make it work properly. And it's got to be layered with pepper on the top as well. See, there's a reason why the soup of the day usually exists on your menu in the entree section. Because you're supposed to want something else to go with your bowl of soup. Now, I'm sure there'll be at least one person who'll come up to me afterwards and say, soup's my favourite thing in the world, I could have it every day. I understand that, but... Most of us know, when you're famished and hungry and just need to, uh, to chow down on something, you're better off with what we had at the men's night last night, which was meat coming out your ears. That's what you're better off with. When you're famished and hungry, a bowl of soup's okay, but it doesn't quite get there, and it doesn't get there day after day after day after day. This morning we start a, a, a new series that begins with a dysfunctional family and a bowl of soup. A bowl of soup that, uh, that results in one man, Esau, selling his soul for a bunch of soup, for a bowl of soup. And we'll be left asking the question in our own lives, what are we, what are we willing to sell our soul for? It's likely that this morning's passage will bring up a huge number of questions for us. And we'll get to those later. Slido.com is the place to ask them. And uh, I'm expecting the questions to go off their head today uh, because of the nature of what we're about to talk about. There's some tough stuff in what we're about to hear. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as he promises to do when we read his word. Let's pray and then we'll dive together into this passage. Heavenly Father, be with us as we look at your word today. We ask, please, as we start this new series in uh, Genesis 25 to 50, that you would give us your grace to understand uh, not only what's going on in the story, but what you want us to know from it and what you want us uh, to be taught by your word that we might go from here changed people. Please help us in this, we ask. We need your help. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we start a, a new series, as I mentioned, on the book of Genesis. Genesis 25 to 50. Probably about 18 months ago, maybe two years, we studied together the first 24 chapters of the book of Genesis. And today we come to finish Genesis 25 to 50. Genesis, of course, is one large book, the first book of the Bible, as Emma mentioned. And for many people, the book they read from the very beginning as they start to read the Bible. But I wonder if you've noticed how to get your bearings around the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is best divided not into 50 chapters like we have in our Bible, but into 10 separate chapters that the Bible writers themselves have put in there for us to notice. 
Right throughout the book of Genesis, ten times we're told of these small little headings. These are the generations of, and then we're told who the generations are. Just look on the screen, you can see the ten listed here. In chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. 5, verse 1, the generations of Adam. 6, verse 9, the generations of Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And it's those last three that we're going to be looking at throughout this series. These are the generations of Isaac. These are the generations of Esau. These are the generations of Jacob. And it's interesting as we look through these generations together, usually they're not about the person that it speaks of at the beginning of the heading. And so you'll see today that in many ways what, what happens between chapter 25 and chapter 36 are the generations of Isaac, but it's the story all about Jacob. Likewise, when we get to chapter 37, verse 2, it's the generations of Isaac, but the story, uh, sorry, Jacob, but the story is all about Joseph. But we'll get to that in due course. Over this series, we'll follow the last three of these uh, headings. And we'll see in there people like Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and the brothers of Joseph who throw him down the well and so on. And we'll see the, the coat of Joseph and all of those amazing stories that follow this part of the Bible. And in these stories, we see big characters and big stories and they're fantastic for, for uh, kids' church and and Sunday school and those sorts of things. But there's lots of big problems in these chapters as well. Lots of issues. In fact, when we look at these uh, stories with adult eyes, we'll find that the people in the stories are not very nice. In fact, if you read the Bible for the very first time and start at the book of Genesis and get to this part, you might say to yourself, how is this God's holy book? What we're going to see in these 25 chapters is if you're on the older end of the spectrum, a bit like the Jerry Springer show. That's what it's going to be like. If you're a bit newer to, to uh, popular culture, maybe it's like Married at First Sight. Uh, either one of those two things fit the bill for what you're about to see. It's a dysfunctional group of people. Characters that are not worth following. But as I've said before here from uh, this place, the Bible, and in the Old Testament in particular, is not a series of character studies where we find the good guy and follow them, and the bad guy, and ignore them, or where we find the, the right person, and follow them, and the wrong person, and ignore them, but Genesis 25 to 50 shows us clearly there's not the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, there's the unrighteous and the other unrighteous, and yet throughout it all, God is at work, and that's what we'll see throughout these chapters. Often God is at work in these chapters in the background. Nevertheless, he is working powerfully as he takes his promises and he entrusts them often to morally corrupt people. And he takes those promises given to morally corrupt people and he protects his promises in the midst of even more corruptible and horrible sin. And we'll see that as these promises pass through this, this bloodline, if you like, that the nation of Israel takes on the very great promises of God. And yet we'll see over the course of this series, and the New Testament will show us this even more clearly, that the promises made throughout the book of Genesis to the nation of Israel through the bloodline of the people of God are the promises that have been given to us in Jesus Christ. 
And we're going to see that the, the bloodline that these promises flow through is actually not ethnic after all, but spiritual. And that the bloodline is by, by faith in the God of the promise who would send the Lord Jesus. And so now we dig in together to Genesis 25 and starting at verse 19 about Jacob and Esau. As we dive into Jacob and Esau, you might remember the, the background is that Abraham was the one chosen by God to be his person. He married Sarah and for a time they were barren, unable to have children. And so uh, not trusting in the promises of God, Sarah, Abraham's wife, suggested that Hagar, her servant, be slept with and, a, and offspring produced. And we know that. This is the person we call Ishmael. And yet there was to be a child of the promise coming later. Isaac, the boy whose name means laughter. Because Abraham and Sarah could not believe that a child would be born to them in their old age. And this man Isaac. This man Isaac has the same problem as his parents. He himself with his wife Rebecca is not able to have a child. We're told in verse 20 that he was 40 years old when they were married. We're told in verse 26 that Isaac was 60 years old when the children finally came. A portion of 20 years before these children of the promise were born into Isaac and Rebekah's households. And into this household was born Jacob and Esau. Now we always speak about them in that order, don't we? But in actual fact, it should be the other way around, or at least to begin with. You see, Esau was born first. Now today, being born first doesn't necessarily carry with it all of those privileges. You know what you get? You get to be first ahead of the other children on the Medicare card. That's a, that's a nice thing, isn't it? Look at me, I'm better than you on the Medicare card. That's about all it lasts for. Usually today, if there is an inheritance to be given from parent to children... It's divided equally, but not in the ancient world. Esau, by virtue of being born first, stood to inherit a double portion of all that belonged to his parents. This wasn't uh, simply uh, a, an act of the culture, but an act of God. God himself said in Deuteronomy 21, which would come later, but was already being lived by at this time in the book of Genesis, that this was to be the case. He was to receive an inheritance of double portion compared to his brother Jacob. But most importantly, however, he was to get the promises of God. The promises of God had been passed from Abraham to Isaac and now to Esau, the very great and wondrous promises of God that we see in Genesis chapter 12. Just hold your finger in Genesis 25. Come back with me just a couple of pages. You're going to have to do this a couple of times this morning. Just to Genesis chapter 12. As you know, I've shared this passage with you so many times. It's the way to understand the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. These are the promises that God made to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here are the promises that God made to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and now passed on to Esau. The promises of L-O-B, lob, land, offspring, blessing to the whole world to come through you, through this family, through this bloodline. These great and precious promises of God, delivered to the forefather Abraham, passed on to his father Isaac, and now down to Esau. He didn't just have a double portion. He had the full portion of God's promises delivered to him by virtue of being the first out of the womb. He had it all. And yet, as we go on to read in Genesis 25, he sold it all for a bowl of soup. How do you get to such a point that you take something so rich and sell it for a bowl of soup? Well, that's the story of verses 24 to 28 back in Genesis 25. Back in Genesis 25, we're told from the very beginning that there were differences between Esau and Jacob. Esau, who might be described in our modern Australian vernacular as Big Red. Big Red was a red-headed, red-hairy man. And he was like that from the beginning. This red-headed man was at birth, coming out of the womb, red and hairy and, well, probably unusual to look at, I would imagine. On the other hand, his brother was described as being smooth, smooth of skin, no hair at all, perhaps even on his head. What's wrong with that? And that's how it works. Right at birth, this was the case, but it was exacerbated throughout their life. We're told in these verses, verses 24 to 28, that Esau was a hunter, He enjoyed the outdoors. He was the Bear Grylls type, out and about, an explorer, adventurer. He was hairy and carried with him, we're told, a smell. I'll leave that to your imagination, what that smell would have been like. I'm guessing not Lynx Africa, just in case you're wondering. Africa of another sort. His life was different to Jacob, who stayed at home. It was perhaps more of a homebody. And this was exacerbated even further. It was exacerbated even further because verse 28 goes on to tells us, tell us, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. His parents had favourites. Now, as I've already mentioned, this is not a part of the Bible where you're supposed to find the desirable characters and attach yourself to them. This is very clearly not a good thing to do, to have favourites in your household, to have favourite children. That does not make sense. It's not a good idea. It doesn't end well. And so it was here. These two boys could not have been any different. And one day, we're told, Big Red comes in, Esau. He comes in and he's smashed after a long day at work. He's hungry, he's tired, and he'll do anything for a bite to eat. Ironically, Jacob is cooking and he's cooking up what is ironically described as red stew, red soup. And so red soup for the red man. 
Big Red comes in, Esau, and he says, give me what you've got. I don't care what it is. I'll just take it. Fill my mouth full of the stuff. Do it right now. Please get it in my mouth. Get it in my belly. I'm dying. Now you might say to yourself, listen, champ, you're not dying. Can we just have that conversation? You know the conversation you have with your children when they're in the, the, the aisle of the supermarket? I'm dying. And they throw themselves on the floor in a tantrum. That never happened to any of you? No? Okay, good. Uh, well, that, that sometimes happens to other people anyway. That's what I hear. Um, but that's what happens when you're feeling famished like that. You have a little tantrum and, and that's what Esau's doing here. Well, Jacob pounces, doesn't he? He says, sell me your birthright and then I'll give you some stew. I'll give you some soup. Esau sadly then says, I'm about to die, verse 32. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Esau sells all that had been given to him for a bowl of soup. Now, no one is shouting glory here, are they? No one. Jacob's not showering glory. He's a conniving, deceptive opportunist who should have cared for his brother, but instead took advantage of him. And Esau, he is not at all a glorious character either, directed by his impulse and his flesh and his hunger. And these are more than just mere words. This is a contract, signed, sealed and delivered, and we'll see next week is something that cannot be changed. The promises that God made to Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, now belong not to Esau, but to Jacob. And we're supposed to read this as disgraceful, disappointing, horrible. That's what it says there at the very end of the passage in verse 34. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now it's interesting, isn't it? He didn't despise it. He didn't hate it. He just preferred a bowl of soup to his birthright. But when you boil it all down, you realise that that's, that language is just about right. If you're going to prioritise a bowl of soup over your birthright, you do despise it. And so it was for Esau. So what does this story teach us? It's a fascinating story of two different boys in one family and, and, and the problems that come. In a family full of favourites like this. But what does it teach us? Well, that's where we turn to the New Testament to find out what the New Testament writers say about a passage like this. And it says two things to us. First of all, we learn about God's sovereign choice. Did you notice there's one part of this passage that I didn't address as we went through? Verses 22 and 23. Look at chapter 25, verses 22 and 23. The children struggled together within her and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This was planned out by God. Even before the firstborn was born, God had decided that the trend would be bucked, that the older would serve the younger. Even before either of them were born, 
God knew who his gracious promises would be given to. Even before they were born, God knew who his gracious gift would be given to. Neither of these boys had done anything, said anything, thought anything, but it was the choice of God. The choice of God that meant that Jacob was to receive the promises of God. And what we find in the New Testament is that it tells us even more in more detail about this exact fact. Come with me. You can leave Genesis 25 behind now. We're going to spend time in the New Testament. Come over with me to uh, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 in your Bible. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written in the book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This passage makes it clear, doesn't it? There was nothing that Jacob did to receive the election of God. Likewise, this passage tells us that the promises of God do not come by the flesh, by the uh, physical bloodline of a person, but by God's choice. Now, let's just be really clear. Jacob here did not get the promises of God because he was more moral than his brother. We've already seen he's a rat bag and we'll see that throughout these next few weeks. He didn't get it because something would happen in his future that God had seen and realised that he was a good guy after all. No, this all happened because of God's electing grace. And this becomes, in the time of the New Testament, a huge controversy in the, in the church of the New Testament. How is it that the Gentile believers get in to the kingdom of God, when they do not belong to the physical bloodline of the Israelites. And Paul says there in verse number six, that is because not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who is in the physical bloodline of a person of Abraham are the people of God. The people of God are those who are stand in the line of the promises of God. And how do you get in the line of the promises of God? Well, you're chosen and elected by him. You and I, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, have been enfolded into the people of God, into the promises of God, precisely because of God's electing grace in your life. Now, if we're honest, this sort of idea and doctrine makes us a little uncomfortable. It makes us feel a little unsure. It doesn't quite seem right. Are you sure that's what the Bible's saying? Well, when you start to read the New Testament, in fact, the Old Testament as well, you find this sort of stuff everywhere. 
Let me share with you just three. These ones are on the screen, so you don't have to look them up, but just check them out. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Look at this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or what about this one? 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul says, I'm suffering for that and bound in chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound as he goes out and preaches it. But look at what he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Well, then there's finally this one from John 6, 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is everywhere in the New Testament, in fact. Uh, these are just three examples that we could find, but it doesn't sit easily with us, does it? It makes us feel uncomfortable that God would be a God of electing grace. It's not easy at any time in human history. It's even more difficult for us in our present moment where we value human autonomy above all things. My ability to choose is the most important thing in my life. And yet, the scriptures tell us that God is an electing God. And out of his grace and mercy, he elects those who will belong to him and he joins them to the promises that he gave to Abraham and that have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And he graciously gives them to us in Jesus Christ, to you and me. Now, I know as we talk about this sort of idea of God's sovereign choice and election, it raises a few questions like, uh, like this one. Why doesn't God choose everyone? Now, of course, we could rephrase that question and ask this. Why does God choose anyone? We've already seen in the story of Jacob and Esau, neither of them are worth having on God's team. No, I'll start again, get rid of those two and start a whole new thing. That's what I would do. But God doesn't. He elects Jacob. Why? Not because of anything he has done, but only in his great mercy. See, what we see in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, is that God, uh, Paul himself anticipates the question that we might have. Look at what he says there, Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or, on, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not wrong to ask the questions. But before you ask the question, take great joy in the fact that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given graciously by God's mercy and mercy alone, the great and precious promises of God in Jesus Christ given to you. Not because of your merit, but because of his compassion on you. Why you? Because he loves you. See the joy. Yes, ask the questions, but see the joy that he gives you in making you one of his children. Secondly, we ask the question, well, what about evangelism then? If God chooses everyone who gets saved, why do we bother speaking about him? Well, and the answer is, as we saw from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that God uses our speech to bring about that change in people's life in real time and space. And it's actually a liberating truth to know that we get to go to work with our dad. When we go to work with our dad as a little kid, uh, more often than not, you just get in the road, don't you? 
But at the end of the day's work, dad's still got to sign off on the work that's been done. And he does that and signs off on his work and the children feel like they've been involved. And to a degree they have. Perhaps they've uh, created more problems than uh, solutions. But the joy is in going to work together. God asks us to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and he uses this to bring about in real time and space the election that he has brought on people's lives and it's a joy to work together with the Lord in his task. Thirdly, we might ask a similar question, why bother praying? If God's got everything under control, it's all done, why do we bother to pray? Because God asks us to. It's an expression of our trust in him. And when we request things of him, he always listens and he does respond in line with his will from the things that we've said. And then finally, we might say, well, aren't we just all puppets at the end of the day? And that brings us to our final point this morning. That's not what this passage will allow us to do. See, there is a responsibility of humanity in amidst the, the cho- choice of God. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He exchanged his future for his present. And Esau is 100% responsible for what he did. Come with me, if you can, in your Bible, just to one last passage. This is the last one we'll look at. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. I'll just start back one verse, verse 15, and read only half of that one. Here's what it says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, now down to verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. There's no hiding here. Esau made real decisions that make him really responsible with real consequences. And we cannot get away from that fact. He exchanged his future for his present And we must take that into account for us, especially in the world in which we live. We live in an instantaneous, immediate, priority, present, spontaneous world. Have you noticed the only things that are valuable are the spontaneous things? The more planning, the less that's valuable in the world in which we live because it's fast-paced and impatient and must keep moving. And Esau matches us, a busy person, an outdoor person, an active person, a a short-sighted Australian person. Esau was given the promises of God and yet sells his future for a bowl of soup. And as we've already seen, we have been given the same promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are part of the spiritual bloodline of Abraham. And yet we must ask ourselves the question, as the book of Hebrews does here, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What would it take for you to sell your soul for a bowl of soup? Now, I'm not talking about the pumpkin soup variety or the mulligatawny variety. You're not going to sell your soul for that, but I'm talking about Sydney-flavoured soup. comes in delicious flavours, doesn't it? Lots of flavours on the menu in Sydney. You know that soup we call the soup of achievement? Where my life is about the achievements that I can get. And I so chase the achievements that I'm willing to sell my soul for that soup 
and exchange my future with the Lord Jesus for the present achievements that I can gain. Or perhaps you'll sell your soul for the, the soup of experiences and lifestyle. To get as many of those great experiences as you possibly can packed into life and the present becomes more important than the future. You sell your soul for experiences and lifestyle. Or perhaps it's relationships. You sell your soul for the relationships in your life, for the present instead of seeking the future. Or we could say stuff or comfort or significance or whatever your soup is, the Sydney soup that you take on. You see, no one ever wakes up one morning as an atheist to walk and drift from from Jesus Christ is no easy task it comes one spoonful at a time one spoonful one spoonful and before you know it the bowl is empty and you've sold your soul for a bowl of soup See, what soup of Sydney are you likely to swill? It's only a spoonful. Maybe another. Maybe another. So you and I need to remember, soup's okay, but even soup's a pretty terrible meal. At the end of the day, selling your soul for soup is about as dumb as it can get. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know. Do not sell your soul for a bowl of soup when you have the very great promises of Christ given to you. There's nothing wrong with achieving things in life. There's nothing wrong with having experiences. There's nothing wrong with relationships. There's nothing wrong with having stuff or or seeking comfort in different ways or significance in your own life. But it makes for a terrible, terrible bowl of soup. To sell your soul for. Because the good news. Is that God has graciously given us. The promises that belong to Abraham. That are fulfilled in Jesus. That are given to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can hold on to this inheritance. Knowing that it's guarded by God. Well you might like to ask a question. It's time to do that. But we're going to sing first this time around. Just to change things up a little bit. Uh, We're going to be singing now. If you'd like to ask a question, you can do that through the songslido.com. Hashtag is HBSP. I'll be up in a minute to answer one or two of those. Might not be able to answer all of them if there's a lot. Uh, But uh, we're going to stand together and sing in Christ alone. Please stand. I think after being reminded that we so often go after other soups, we do need to be reminded that it is through Christ alone that we have hope and life. Um, So please stand with us and we're going to reflect on that now. So a couple of questions uh, that are here. First one, uh, what about when it's hard to accept God's sovereign will as actually being for our good? Uh, There's a related question here too. Uh, God's sovereign control can make us frustrated, angry, sad. We experience terrible things outside of our control. How do we turn to find comfort again? This is is sort of going to sound trite, but I hope it makes sense. The, the answer is, in this particular situation, is in the cross of Jesus. Because the cross of Jesus is a terrible, horrible, awful thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a, you can't put it any other way. The Son of God was killed on a cross. And yet, uh, that was planned out by God uh, for good. 
Now, if it's possible that that thing could be planned out for good, even though it's the most horrible thing that's ever happened, is it possible that whatever you experience in hardship could be for, for good? Uh, and, and, and good as defined by God as opposed to being defined by us. That's a trick, isn't it, um, to work that one out? So I'd say look to the cross because it's the cross that helps us to understand that actually uh, the, the bad things that happen to us are, uh, are, are not out of God's control, and the bad things that happen to us are not necessarily the things um, uh, that are going to end up being for, for bad purposes as well. Um, the other thing that I think um, is related uh, to that is um, we, we put our own definitions on what good and, and bad is and what um, trouble and hardship is like. And most of us know that from our own personal relationship with God, that time grows through hardship rather than grows in, in uh, the, uh, the easy times. And so you look at situations like that and you say, well, sometimes we find ourselves in these difficult situations precisely so that our faith might flourish and grow as well. Um, and so it's, uh, it is tricky, that's for sure. Um, uh, a question from Emma, it's a good one. How do we reconcile that God loves everyone when he only elects some, creating people that are not elected for a relationship with God but an eternity in hell? It's tricky. It is tricky. Um, but that's why this passage is incredibly important and incredibly important to hold in tension together both sides of the equation. There's no doubt about the fact that God is an electing God, but there's absolutely no doubt that when we find ourselves in, uh, in the presence of God in heaven, when we say, uh, why did you send Esau to hell that way? The answer will be because he made deliberate, responsible steps against God. Now, how those two things fit together is hard work, isn't it, to try and work out how those two things fit together? But God so loved the world, Christ died once for all. So those things are true. He died for the world. He, he loves the world. He died for the world. The, the salvation that he offers is available to everybody, but nevertheless will only be affected by some. Uh, and that's the, that's the story of the scriptures. And we've got to keep holding those two parts in tension. Our, our logic wants to take over from the scriptures. And our logic wants to say, logically, that can't work. 100% this, 100% that. That doesn't work. But it does work from a theological point of view. How that works exactly logically, I can't work all of that out. But you've got to hold the two truths in tension. Otherwise, you get it out of balance and out of whack, either one way or the other, which is not healthy for us as well. Um, also, I recognise that in these sorts, of, these sorts of areas, and this is why one of the questions that we often ask is in relation to evangelism and also in relation to is God fair or unfair, um, it's because it deals with people and people that we know, people we love, people we care for, and so on. Uh, and, and, and that's part of the process as well. So it's not just a theological question, it's a pastoral question too, which makes it difficult and, and wants us to err one way or the other. But we've got to hold the scriptures where they are and the tension they are, even with the relational tension we have, and say, I don't know what God's doing there, uh, but I'm going to trust that what he says is true. Thanks for the question. Last one is uh, just a comment there from um, Rod. Has the potter no right over the clay to make use uh, of one honourable and one dishonourable use? What sovereignty? Yeah, Romans nine twenty one. It's a great chapter, and uh, and well worth um, well worth putting in your memory bank as well. I'm going to pray, and then we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have uh, called us to be your own people, apart from anything we've done in our own lives. And we ask, please, that you might help us to be stimulated by the things here in these passages to help us understand your character more 
but also to understand our responsibility uh, not to sell our soul for a bowl of soup and to remember the inheritance that's been given to us in Christ. Please help us in this. We always need your help by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, sorry, I've just seen there's two really late questions that have come in. Sorry, I didn't answer them. If you want to talk, I'm more than happy to talk afterwards. Love to. Well, at the heart of the Christian life is an active trust in the Lord Jesus and his saving death.